0: Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I'm presenting a
1: series of programs on the subject of the Sabbath law, and today's program is a continuation of the previous broadcast. Now in the previous broadcast, I was explaining that when a person tries to live according to the Sabbath law... They will have to establish a set of criteria so that they can say that they have successfully found a way to live according to the Sabbath law. This was the origin of many of the conflicts that Jesus had with the Pharisees, that the Pharisees had their set of criteria. Jesus had his set of criteria. The criteria that Jesus established was contradictory to the criteria that the Pharisees had established, and so you really have to choose between one or the other. But even if you choose to live by the criteria that Jesus demonstrated and tried to extract from that what you think the proper criteria is, again, even if you are successful, The most you can hope for is to live under the curse of God according to the law because you will not obey all of the commandments anyway. And so the goal that people try to attain, again, is not attainable. It was never attainable. It was structured, given by our God in such a way that it could never be achieved, could never be obtained. And so for us to try to identify criteria so that we can claim, that we are successful, is without question, in my mind, a life of futility. Now, when it comes to the Sabbath law, one of the ways that Jesus expressed this was by comparing life and death. The way that the Pharisees were living would lead a person to experience death, pain, suffering, destruction... But the way that Jesus was speaking about it was to suggest that there is another way of life that has to do with life, that has to do with peace and rest. At the end of the previous program, I was in Matthew chapter 12, verse 8, where he said that the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And then he continued in Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 9, where it says, Now when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue, and behold, There was a man who had a withered hand, and they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, that they might accuse him? Then he said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value, then, is a man than a sheep? Therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath." Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. Why would they want to destroy him? Why would they do that? They wanted to destroy him because he healed the man, because he did something good, and from their point of view... That was a violation of the Sabbath law. According to their criteria, their beliefs, the man had to remain in his condition of suffering. That was how he was supposed to observe the Sabbath day of rest. Jesus healed him so that he could enjoy the Sabbath day without this suffering that he was experiencing. And because of that, they decided that they needed to destroy Jesus. They needed to find some way to kill him if necessary, which they eventually did. This is the point. And that is that people are more concerned with destruction than they are with life. And because of that, there are people who will never be able to embrace the new covenant because that is what he is involved in. He is involved with the creation of life, and yet there are others who believe that it is more important to create death and destruction, pain and suffering, than it is to create life, and they use the law of God as their excuse in order to harm other people. Consider what happened in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, beginning in verse 10, where it says, Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, There was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity eighteen years and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, There are six days on which men ought to work, therefore come and be healed on them, and not on the Sabbath day. The Lord then answered him and said, Hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall, and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it. For eighteen years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath. And when he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. So again, do we look at this and say, well, now we have new criteria that we can identify? If a person has an infirmity, then we can heal them on the Sabbath day. We can do good on the Sabbath day. Even if it's considered to be our work, then we can do that. No, this is not about identifying the correct criteria by which we live in obedience to the Sabbath law. This is about recognizing that there is something else outside of the law, completely separated from the law. There is something different And that is the creative work of God and the participation that we can be involved in in the creation of life doing the work of God. And what is the work of God? It is a work to bring people to a point of rest. This woman was now able to experience rest in a way that she had not been able to experience for 18 years. It is about rest. He is showing that the Pharisees were preventing people from resting and they were using the Sabbath law as a way to justify keeping people from resting. The Lord Jesus spoke to them about this in order to introduce to them the importance of recognizing that the work of God does have to do with providing people with an opportunity to rest and that the Sabbath law was nothing more than a shadow of this reality, and that it is this reality that we are to turn to. We are not to live our lives according to criteria. We are to live our lives according to the work of God. And the work of God is not just about work, it is about rest. And it's not just about rest, it's also about work. You see, when people are focused on this law and focused on trying to live in obedience to it, They will have no alternative but to become consumed with the criteria by which we are to live so that we can ensure our obedience. But for what? For what? He told us what we could get, and he also told us that we will never achieve it. So give it up. Let it go. Consider salvation. What is the criteria to be saved? Does it have anything to do with the Sabbath law? Of course it doesn't. It has nothing to do with the Sabbath law, unless you believe that that's the gospel. The gospel, according to you, is that a person can be saved if they successfully observe the Sabbath law. Is is that what you believe? Is that really what you believe? No, the criteria is simple. We are spiritually dead in need of forgiveness. He has provided us with forgiveness so that he can restore the life that had been lost in Adam. That's the good news. That's what salvation is. The criteria to be saved is to embrace his forgiveness, believe and trust in what he has done, and then we can be born again by the Spirit of God, and we will have a place in the kingdom of heaven. What is the criteria to go to heaven? Is it to successfully obey the law to the extent that you are satisfied? That your criteria is met? What about the criteria of the law of God? The criteria that Jesus established be as perfect as God himself. What about that? No, who cares about that, right? Because you can't meet it anyway. So create your own fantasy concerning this criteria. This is not the way to live, folks. This is not it. This has nothing to do with the kingdom of heaven, with the restoration of the Holy Spirit. This is something else. But folks, our God has provided us with great news. And that is that the law is over. It's over for those who have been saved. We are dead to the law. And if you have never been born again by the Spirit of God, then you are still alive to the law and you find some criteria so that it will eventually drive you to this point of despair and destruction so you will finally turn to Him for His grace and mercy. What is the criteria to have a relationship with God? Is it to get all of the sin out of your life? Is that it? Do we have to wait until we find some way to get our flesh under control before we can begin to have a relationship with Him? If that's the criteria, then when will a person ever begin to have a relationship with their God? You know, I know many people who will probably die with this belief. I mean, they are so committed to it. It is unbelievable. I know people who really believe that their sin separates them from God to such an extent that they cannot have a relationship with their God until this sin is resolved. How do they do it? They do it with confession, trying to obtain forgiveness, which to me is a denial of the forgiveness that he has already given through the cross. The series I did on forgiveness addresses this subject with more detail. I'm just briefly mentioning it right now, that there are many people who really believe that their sin separates them from their God. But listen, folks, those people who believe that, I have no confidence whatsoever that of those who I personally know. Now, there might be some that I don't know who don't fit into this category, but I do not know of who they are myself. That doesn't mean they don't exist. It just means that I am convinced of this up to now, that without question, there are people who have no relationship with their God, and yet they believe they are devoted to this belief, that they will not until they get their flesh under control. When they do, then they will. When they think they have through that moment of forgiveness between the time of prayer and the time when they sin again, they think that somehow in between that small gap of time they have some relationship with him. Well, folks, in my opinion, this is just my opinion, that's pure fantasy. They think they do. But because they don't know the difference, they don't know what a real relationship with their God is about, and why they will never know that what they have isn't real. They will never know that what they have isn't real because they are unwilling to accept the price that they would have to pay for confessing that they were wrong. And this is very sad. The criteria for salvation, the criteria for a relationship, the criteria to be a participant in the work of God, is not based on what we do or what we don't do. It is only based on what he has done on our behalf. And when we believe anything that contradicts that, it will be a barrier that we will create ourselves that will prevent us from walking in the newness of life that he has made available for us. And there are many people who will never embrace this. But I'm speaking to you about this right now because if you have never experienced this, If you can tell that I'm speaking of something that you know nothing of, I'm saying this so that you might review your beliefs, so that you might reconsider and ask him to show you where you may be in error, what you might be missing, so that perhaps over time he might be able to relate to you in such a way that you will be able to understand what I am speaking of. This is what I pray for, because, folks, I've been on both sides. I've lived a life according to the law that to me is more impressive than anyone I have yet met, with a few exceptions. I continually encounter people, and probably will continue to encounter people, who who assert themselves in such a way that they think I'm supposed to be impressed with what they do and do not do, with how they obey or do not obey. And these people, they know nothing, nothing about me whatsoever, and if they only would take a few minutes... To ask me instead of declare to me, then perhaps they might know that they are not impressive to me at all. You know, sometimes as a Jew I tell them, listen, you might impress a Gentile who doesn't know any better, but you're talking to a Jew who does. And so you might want to consider walking away and go find someone who doesn't know any better so that you might be able to continue with this pride you've got. But I know what this is. I know what this is about. I've been there. I've done that. I've bought the t-shirt. And there is no way that I will ever go back because I have seen the reality of the new covenant. I have seen the reality that was foreshadowed by this law among others. And I pray that one day you will see what I see now instead of seeing what you see now that I have seen once before. Because you think you know, and you don't. So go find someone who doesn't know any better, who hasn't been there, who hasn't done that, who isn't as devoted as you think you are. I tend to have a little bit of an attitude concerning this because of the pain I still feel in my heart for how long it took me to believe, to believe and trust my God. For that, I still bear small amounts of shame. But now I believe I trust, I see, let me tell you what I see. What I see was expressed well in Hebrews chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 4. And I have done a verse-by-verse study on the book of Hebrews. You can find that in my radio archive. And so I'm not going to go through Hebrews chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 4 verse by verse. But what I do want you to know is that in the midst of my struggle that I had concerning this, this was what finally settled the issue in my heart so that I could begin to grow to understand my God for who he is and to live the life that he has provided for me. My answer was found in Hebrews chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 4. In Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 8, it says, For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. This is a prophetic statement concerning the rest that was to come. In verse 9, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. Now listen, God gave the commandment to Moses to rest. The people did not believe Moses and so they did not enter into the promised land in order to enter into the rest that God provided them, not just of the Sabbath day, but also of being able to rest in the promised land to eat from the vineyards that they did not plant and drink from the wells that they did not dig. That's what he's talking about in verse 8 when he said that Joshua had given them rest in the flesh, but not in the heart, not in the spirit. And so there remains a rest for the people of God. Now, listen to me very carefully. If you think the Sabbath day is the rest For the people of God, you're wrong. It's not it. If you think that the land of Israel is the rest for the people of God, you've got it wrong. It's not it. In verse 9, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9, there remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. Folks, if it's not the Sabbath day and it's not the promised land, then what is it? It's something else. It's something besides the Sabbath day, and it's something besides the promised land. And should we consider searching, seeking the face of God so that we might see what this is? Should we consider it? Should we even bother? Continue to verse 10. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from His. Until you enter into this rest, you will not have ceased from your works as God did from His in the way that God wants you to. What does this mean? This means that the Sabbath day is not it. This means that if you think it is, you have not ceased from your works as God did from His. This means that if you think that being in the promised land of Israel, being in that geography, is entering into his rest, if you believe that that means that you have ceased from your works as God did from his, then you do not know the reality that was prophesied. You do not know the reality that was foreshadowed by the Sabbath law or that was foreshadowed by the promised land, you are still in the shadow, not in the reality. And recall the previous program when I spoke about going to buy firewood and that I might offer to sell you the shadow of the tree instead of the tree itself. That's what I'm talking about. In verse 10, you have not ceased from your works as God did from his, if you think, if you believe that it has something to do with the Sabbath law or something to do with the promised land. You have failed to enter into that rest. In verse 11, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. The example of disobedience that we have The fall that they experienced led them into captivity, led them into destruction and despair. They experienced the curse of God. But what this will lead you to is not that kind of destruction. Your failure to enter into the rest that is real will lead you into the destruction of the pit of hell. That is the ultimate consequence for failing to enter into this other rest that has nothing to do with the Sabbath or the promised land. Do not fail to enter into that. Now, folks, I remember the day when I read this and I saw that I knew nothing of what this spoke of. And so if right now you know nothing of what I'm talking about, do not be afraid. For me, it took several years after this point, before I really embraced what I believe this reality is. And so take some time. But recognize that you don't know what this rest is. Recognize that you don't know what the works are that he is speaking of. Because only then will you be able to begin to proceed with this journey of the peace and rest that he has truly called you to so that you can rest as he did the rest that he speaks of is resting from your works of righteousness. It is to rest from doing things to obtain a relationship with God, to sustain a relationship with God, to build or increase your holiness, to build righteousness, to reduce the sin in your life, to get your flesh under control. These are the things that that you must rest from. You must rest from your works of righteousness. Again, you must rest from your life of trying to restrain your flesh. You must rest from your life of trying to be holy. You must rest from trying to live according to works. You must rest from trying to live according to the law, because it's only then that you will be able to enter in to the rest that he has provided through the Messiah. The Messiah has saved us from all of these things so that we can truly begin to rest in our spirits, rest in the innermost part of our beings, so that we can be at peace with God and then we can begin to be participants in the work that he is now doing. So first, if we are going to begin to rest as he did, if we are going to be able to enter into this, we must put the law aside to include the law of resting. It is only then that you can enter into this. Yes, it is true that you must rest from all of your works to include the work of resting on the Sabbath day. Only then will you be able to begin to understand and experience what he speaks of. But if you fail, if you fail, you will fall according to the same example of disobedience. Now, you might wonder again, how can a person say that violating the Sabbath law according to Moses is sin and also say that depending on your obedience to the Sabbath law, which, of course, you can't obey anyway is another form of sin. That creates a contradiction. It creates a contradiction to say that it is disobedience to depend on, to rely on the inactivity of your flesh, and yet it is also disobedience to not rely on or depend on the inactivity of your flesh. How can it be that both can exist simultaneously? Well, the answer to this concern, which is a contradiction... From the point of view that I just described, the answer is to understand that the law was given for several purposes, but none of those purposes included having a relationship with your God. The purpose of the new covenant is so that you will have a relationship with your God so you can enter into a rest that was foreshadowed by the law so that you can be a participant in the work of God that he is now doing. But to enter into this, you truly must let go of the Old Covenant in its entirety, to enter into the New Covenant in its entirety. I am out of time for this program, and so for further information on this, listen to the program that I did on the Everlasting Covenant for more details on this subject. And I will continue in the next broadcast.